Before we get started, I just want to uh, reflect on something that I shared with you a few weeks ago uh, when we had one of our uh, partners uh, that we're going to be helping plant a few weeks ago. If you were here uh, on, I think, the 21st of November, we had Ike Todd and his wife, Ari, with us. They're planting a church down in Orlando, Florida, and uh, we are going to be getting behind them and supporting them financially along with uh, just helping them think through discipleship at their church. And if you were with us, uh, you know I introduced something to you that, that we as elders are excited to have as a goal as we close out this year of 2021. If you're on our mailing list, you received a video of this. If you're a family member of Salem Chapel, you received this news first. And that is our Make and Mobilize initiative. Uh, I just want to touch on that because I really want us uh, to not miss out on this opportunity that God is giving us as a church. You know, we have been blessed, and I use that word intentionally, that we have been blessed as a church just through a lot of hard work, a lot of prayer, to be able to begin to see the fruit of having a church that really has as its bullseye discipleship. And really values the importance of what Jesus says in John 15 of what it looks like to abide with Jesus. We define that as walking hand in hand with Jesus as he leads the way. Uh, we've been able to benefit that from that in our own lives as we've been using our Bible reading tool that we've developed and our prayer tool and the journals that we have and hearing stories of, of how you've grown in your walk with Jesus, how you've been able to help others who didn't know how to read the Bible or didn't even know where to begin or didn't know how to pray. Uh, if you've had children in Salem Kids, you've seen the benefits of your children learning at a young age what that idea of abide Means And so I'm just so thankful that we as a church, man, we have an ethos, we have a way, we're, we're developing a culture here that, that we are being intentional with our mission statement to make and mobilize disciples. And that word disciple that we define, we define it this way, someone who abides with Jesus and equips others to do the same. And that word equip means to give resources to someone else to do what you, what, what they need to do. And so we have as an opportunity. You know, we've, we've helped plant churches. Uh, we have Dogs of Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina that we have planted and they're doing well and we've supported them for, for uh, a number of years. Our elders help coach uh, that church to install elders on their own. They're doing well in Spartanburg, South Carolina. You know that Dave Jacobson was sent out of this place to go plant in Madison, Wisconsin and, and their church is thriving. Uh, we, we helped plant a church in the United Kingdom, Vertical Church, and uh, Chipri, and the folks there, and that church is thriving. Their church is actually bigger than the church that they meet in. Um, and so we've been able to just, just to praise the Lord for that, we've been able to come alongside of Derek Delane, who used to serve on this church as well, and they're doing great in Nashville, Tennessee with Proclamation Church. As I mentioned, we're going to get behind Ike Todd and and his team as they plant New Creation Fellowship in Orlando, Florida. Here's why I say those things, because we want to be a church that's more than just giving them money to be able to pay the rent and buy the equipment and, and be able to staff uh, the pastors and so that their family has something to eat, which is very important. But we want to also have financial resources that we can come alongside of them and help them build out what we are experiencing in this place. Not the same thing, not the same language, but to think about how do we build out an intentional discipleship culture in our church? How do we build out an intentional gospel care ministry in our church? 
And so I laid out a goal of $50,000 that will seed us money in addition to what we are going to include in our 2022 budget, but $50,000 to be able to have the resources to come alongside those churches and give them the same training that we received because of your faithful giving in this last year. And so we want to do that. We want to equip others to do what we are doing. And so I hope that you will get behind that above and beyond your giving at Salem Chapel. You've been so faithful in that this year. And so I want to encourage you to do that. You can go to our website, salemchapel.org backslash give. You can choose, I think it's a make or mobilize drop down. If you write, I want to write a check, you write make and mobilize on that memo line. And uh, it's so important that I'm uh, taking time out of our message to just highlight that. Um, but you will hear that uh, throughout the end of this year. Uh, if I cough, let me just say, don't freak out, okay? I don't have COVID. I had a sinus infection. Um, so I consider it so important that I am literally using some of my words to be able to highlight the Make and Mobilize initiative. But I feel like when you're sick now, you got a precursor. I'm not sick either, okay? I'm over it. But now you got to like, it's not COVID. It's not COVID, okay? So just letting you know that. All right, John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30 this morning. John chapter 4. We've been in this series uh, for uh, since the beginning of September. It's crazy. It feels like, or not the beginning of September, um, but at the end of October. And uh, we've been walking through this book of John if you are following along in your reading plan, the reading plan that we put before you, if you don't have that, you can go to our Welcome Center, you can grab that, you can go to our website, you can grab that as well. Uh, but we've been walking through the book of John. You've been doing that on your own. I hope you have as you've been following along. You actually already read this passage of scripture this week. But really our aim of this series is what John gives as the purpose of this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you would believe that for your salvation, that you are not good enough to save yourself. We looked at that last week. We'll look at that again today in this narrative in John chapter 4. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what I know. You don't stop growing in that belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't stop growing in that. If I look at my life, the Lord is committed to continue to grow me in understanding. Johnny, I am your Christ. I am God. I am sufficient. I am all-powerful. I am the one that you can place your belief in and not wonder if I'm not going to come through. That's what the Lord wants us to continue to grow in if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, as we do what? As we abide with Jesus, as we walk hand in hand with him as he leads the way. So where we are in John chapter four, verses one through 30, what we're gonna look at, I just wanna focus on last week. Aaron did a great job teaching through that passage of scripture, but John introduces, John the author of this gospel, John introduces Nicodemus in chapter three, this personal encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. Now we come to chapter four, and John includes another personal encounter as well. Once again, what is John's purpose? To show that Jesus is who he says he is, and he includes these personal encounters with Jesus, not just <coughs> 
Jesus meeting with the masses, but Jesus having personal encounters. And I just think it's so interesting that after we get past this first miracle that Jesus does at the wedding of Cana, now we have these very two intimate conversations that could not be more opposite in who he has them with. I think, I think we can agree with that. Let me just point that out. If you don't know much about Nicodemus or this Samaritan woman, let me give you some of the comparison contrasts. Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a Jew. This Samaritan woman, well, she was who she is. She's a Samaritan. We'll explain the significance of that here in a moment. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. He was part of the Sanhedrin, this council of 70. She had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was viewed as immoral. He had a name. She is nameless in this passage. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She had no reputation, so she came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. See, if Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can do enough to earn salvation, right? It doesn't matter how much you do, doesn't matter what your pedigree is, doesn't know how much you know about the Bible. Like, you and I can do nothing to earn our salvation, which emphasizes our need of God's grace. If that's what Jesus was going after in John chapter three. Here's what we're gonna see in John chapter four is that there is nothing that I can do, there's not enough that I can do to not receive salvation. And that is as much a part of God's grace. So literally, after we're done with this passage of scripture, we're gonna get to see two sides of the coin of God's grace. You can't do enough good to earn salvation, and on the flip side, you can't do enough bad to not receive salvation. And that's so important that we understand that. The Samaritan woman in this passage came for water, carrying not only a water jar, but also the heavy burden of her shame. But instead, she met Jesus. He spoke to her and gave her the water of life, a gift that she had never dreamed of, but that satisfied her most important thirst, her thirst for identity, her thirst for worth, her thirst for salvation. And what you're gonna see today is she received it completely. Like, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the title of the message, A Glorious Exchange. What you're going to see today in this passage of Scripture is a glorious exchange that happens from a woman who is seen as an outcast. And what she gives Jesus, what she comes to that well carrying versus what she walks away with. And it is a glorious exchange. And it is a glorious exchange that Jesus wants to do with you this morning. Whether you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, or if you have. Here's the idea I want you to get today, is that Jesus wants, he desires, he wants to exchange your shame with his love for you. Now, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but I wonder, just answer this in your mind. How many of you are living with shame this morning? If you don't know how to quantify that, 
Here's a definition that I came up with of shame. It's the burdensome feeling of humiliation caused by what you believe you have or have not done. How many of you are living in shame this morning? Because shame is a burdensome thing. Shame is a heavy thing. Shame is a debilitating thing. Shame is a paralyzing thing. And you walking hand in hand with Jesus. And what I love in this passage of scripture is Jesus makes this exchange with this woman who is guilt-ridden and shame-ridden. And the difference with how she comes versus how she leaves. Can we just pray just for a moment? And I just want you, if you are like, man, I, I, every day that I wake up, I'm overwhelmed with shame. Shame of what I've done or shame in how I feel like I haven't measured up. So can we just pray this simple thing? Lord, would you speak to my shame today? And would I be willing to make an exchange with you? My shame for your love. God, we're here today to hear from you. God, we say when your word is open, your mouth is open. So God, may we see your love for us through this passage that many of us know so well and how you love this woman that was seen as an outcast because of her race. She was seen as an outcast because of what she had done. She was seen as, an, she was seen as less than because of her gender. And God, may that speak to us today of how much you love us in the exchange that you want to make in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you four reasons this morning why this exchange that Jesus is offering is good news to you. Like, I don't know what you came in with this morning. Maybe it is shame. I don't know what you encountered this week. But I'm telling you right now, if you're watching us online, I don't know what you're going through right now as you're watching me right now, wherever you're at, or you're listening to this later on on a run or a car or wherever or on a break at work, whatever it is, listen to me, you are listening to this for a reason. Because Jesus wants to speak to your shame today. And I want to give you four reasons why that is good news. Let's read verses one through nine. It says this, now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not, himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So, you know, there's always this, there's beginning to be this tension where the Pharisees are starting to notice Jesus, because now Jesus is getting more of a following than even John the Baptist, and Jesus didn't necessarily baptize anyone, don't really know why. I mean, we can assume maybe some different reasons, but we don't know for sure why Jesus himself did not baptize, but it says his disciples. But anyway, that's going on. Jesus is starting to gain more popularity. Verse three, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I want you to underline that. That phrase, he had to pass through Samaria, and we'll explain the significance of that here. In just a few minutes when we're done reading. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, I have this underlined, this phrase, wearied as he was from his journey. Like, yes, Jesus got tired. 
was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, so around 12 noon, high noon. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I just want to point out some significant things in this passage of Scripture before I give you this first reason why what Jesus is offering you today is good news in regard to your shame and his love for you. Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, this passage says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So what you need to understand, and it's not explained here, and I don't necessarily have a map on the screen because we got to keep moving. we got a lot of verses to cover. But there were two routes to get to Galilee from where they were. Okay, there was an eastern and there was a western route. Now, the Jews would take the eastern route. Why? Because they would avoid Samaria. And it was a longer route. But because they didn't like the Samaritans, and we'll explain why here in a moment, they didn't care that it was longer. Listen to me, when I'm looking for directions on where to go, which is most of the time, by the way, uh, when I pull up Google Maps, I ain't looking for the way to avoid tolls, and I ain't looking for the most scenic route. You know what I'm looking for? The what? The quickest way. That's what I'm about. It's the most efficient way I can get from point A to point B, but the Jews did not view it like that. No, 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 we ain't going through Samaria. No, dude, you don't understand. You don't go through Samaria if you're a Jew. So they would take the eastern route, but Jesus didn't take that way. Why? Because it said he had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through that way? Because he had a woman to meet. I think that's significant. That's, that's, that's context to this passage of scripture. The next thing I want to point out is that Jesus met this woman at the well. It says at the sixth hour, high nude. Now what you need to understand is, is women were the ones who would get water for their households. I know it sounds extremely misogynist uh, that men should be carrying all this water for the women, but unfortunately that was not the case. And ladies, just be thankful you did not live during this time because women were not seen in high regard. But nevertheless, women didn't go get water at 12 o'clock in the heat of the day. You know when they went to get water? Around the evening, around or before six o'clock at night, as the sun started to set, they would go get water. Why? Because they had to walk a long way. They had to carry water. We know water is heavy, so they would do that in the cool of the day. But this woman chooses to do it in the peak heat of the day. Why? Because nobody else is doing it. Why does she want to go when no one else is doing it? Because her reputation is not good. As we're going to see here in a moment, she wants to avoid talking to anybody. Why? Because I think it's safe to say that what that alludes to is she is not just carrying, as I said, a water jar, but she's carrying something much heavier, and that's her shame. Now, here's what else I want to point out in this passage, that Jesus asks her. She doesn't begin this conversation with Jesus. But Jesus begins this conversation with her and asks her to give him a drink. Now, here's why that's significant. Because this would have been shocking to this woman because it was a social custom of this culture that men did not speak with women no matter if they were Jew or a Samaritan other than your wife. 
let alone a rabbi who Jesus was seen as right now, would not speak to a woman who had any sort of reputation that would have been sinful. Thirdly, obviously Jesus is not supposed to speak to a woman, let alone one who has a sinful reputation. And thirdly, that's a Samaritan. So when Jesus asked this woman, give me a drink, it catches her attention. And I say that, look at verse 9. How is it that a Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman at Samaria? So let me give you a context of why there was this rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. Well, the foreign non-Jews, so if you think back to the to Israel's history, you have a northern kingdom, you have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is overthrown first before the southern kingdom by outside forces. And what would happen is these non-Jews intermarried with people who were left behind in the northern kingdom. And what ended up happening over, over generations is it was impossible for these Jews who were left behind who intermarried with non-Jews to even begin to trace their genealogy at all of their Jewishness. So that's one reason why they didn't like each other. But when Jew, Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem, as we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, their first priority was what? Remember, all the way back, it was when I first got here in 2016, we did a series of Nehemiah, if you were here. And their first thing that they wanted to do was what? Rebuild the temple. Well, if you look at that story again, the Samaritans offered their help to rebuild the temple, but the Jews wanted to have nothing to do with them or their help. So obviously that enraged the Samaritans. So what did the Samaritans do? Well, you don't want our help, so we're gonna build our own temple. So they built it on Mount Gerizim in 400 BC. So you got more of this layers of racism and rivalry. But here's what gets worse. The Jews later destroyed the temple that the Samaritans built in the intertestamental period. What I mean is between Malachi and Matthew, that time frame. So you got the Samaritans who aren't viewed as pure Jews that is at their strife. You have that the Jews didn't want the Samaritans' help when they returned from exile to rebuild the temple. You got that layer of strife. And then you've got the strife that says, well, we're gonna build our own temple because we don't want our help. And then you add on top of it, the Jews destroyed the temple that Samaritans built because the Jews didn't want their help. So that's all the layers of racism that are going on between the Jews and the Samaritans, which is why this woman has this reaction. But here's what's most significant to me in verses one through nine, is that Jesus has this interaction with this woman when he's wearied from his journey, and he's tired. Now here's what is a glaring sign to me that unfortunately, I am so different than Jesus. Because Sunday afternoons for me are not a time that I wanna talk to anybody. It's a time I take a nap. And I'm not saying that if there's ever an emergency that you don't call me. You know, living the life of a pastor, I feel like I have to literally give caveats to everything that I say. Can you feel my pain? But nevertheless, Sunday afternoons, I ain't looking to do ministry, just being honest with you. But Jesus, as tired as he is, is ready to engage this woman. But listen to me, you know why he's tired? Because he went to see her. See, here's the first reason Jesus wants to exchange 
your shame with his love for you? Because your shame says you're not wanted. That's what your shame says. But Jesus' love says you are wanted. What drips from these first nine, nine verses is that Jesus is declaring that he wants this woman to receive his love for her. Listen to me. Jesus always comes to us first. He makes the first move. Romans 5, 8, if you don't believe me, in the midst of my sin is when Jesus loved me. Ephesians 2, 4, when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, no, 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 it was because of his mercy, because of his great love that he loved me first. Jesus always makes the first move. Always. Listen to me, if we were left to ourselves, if this woman was left to herself, she would have left Jesus sitting there, tired, at the side of the well, would never have made eye contact with him, would never have spoken to him, would never have interacted with him, why? Because she was ridden with shame. I'm not gonna speak to this man. He's a Jew, she recognized that he was a Jew. He's not gonna wanna talk to me. I'm not gonna speak to this man because it's the social custom not to. I'm not gonna speak to another person who may know my reputation. Listen to me, Jesus made the first move. He said, I want you to give me a drink. I want you to see that you're wanted. And so many of us sit here this morning and we know the gospel. We know what Jesus has done for us. We've even received it as our own. But even after we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, understanding that he loved us in spite of our sin, after our salvation, we can get caught up thinking, Jesus doesn't want me. I'm still caught up in what I've done. I'm still caught up in what I haven't done, where I haven't measured us. But what I want you to see in these nine verses is Jesus comes to her. He comes to us. He asks the first question. He initiates the conversation. He uses all the devices to break through to her heart and to our hearts. Listen to me. If you're in this room this morning, you're here because God wants you to hear this. He's making the first move. If you're watching this online this morning and you're not a child of God and you're ridden with what you've done and you think that you're not wanted, you're listening this today. You're hearing God's word today because he's making the first move. Your shame says you're not wanted, but oh, listen to me. Jesus' love says that you are wanted. Let's keep reading in verses 10 through 18. Jesus answered her, answered what? The question, how is it that you would you ask for me? Drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, and where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well to drink from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. You gotta underline that phrase, a spring of water, not a well, a spring welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Man, Lord, give me this water. Now she's not, 
We're not sure if she understands what Jesus is saying or she's thinking literally to what Jesus is thinking, literal water. But she's literally saying, if I don't ever have to come to this well again to experience shame every day, Lord, I want that water. Verse 17, the woman, or sorry, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, here we are. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Every day this woman went to this well, being reminded that she was going to have to do it again. I got to do this again tomorrow. Who am I going to see? Who am I going to meet? What are they going to say? What are they going to whisper as I pass by? Every day, she went to that well, burdened with her shame, understanding that that identity that she wished that she could have could never be quenched. But what I want you to see in this passage, in these verses, is that Jesus was offering her something better. He was offering her something better. Not water that was stagnant in a well, but a spring. A spring that could quench her thirst. And here's the reality. The fact of the matter is this, that we so often look for everything to satisfy our thirst that can never quench it. It's like, how many of you like Chinese food? Raise your hand. Okay, the vast majority of you. Some of you are like, I'm already hungry. I get it. I love Chinese food. But here's what I've found with Chinese food. I mean, I've had it sometimes after church on Sundays before I take my nap. I've, so, so I've had Chinese food many, many times. I love it just like you do. But here's what I've found. First of all, it's not light on the calorie count. But we love it. And, but here's what I've found. When I eat Chinese food, for some reason, I've consumed probably... I don't like to think about it, probably 3,500, 4,000 calories if I'm super hungry, depending on how many egg rolls I eat. But in three hours, I'm hungry again. You ever find that out with Chinese food? Not knocking Chinese food. But I've just consumed what normally I should consume in two days in a matter of 30 minutes, and I'm hungry in three hours. But that's exactly what we experience when we look to things to satisfy our spiritual thirst with something that can never deliver on what it promised. Just like this woman had to go to the well every day to get water again for the next day, that's so often how we live our lives, even as followers of Jesus Christ. And the woman knew that. And she's interested in what Jesus is offering. But notice the question that Jesus asks. Because I think it's interesting that all of a sudden Jesus shifts from talking about this water to now he's like, hey, go get your husband. And you're like, man, where did the shift happen? I thought we were talking about no shame. But he asked her to call her husband, not because he doesn't know her situation, this is God. But he wants her to say it. He wants her to speak her shame. To speak to the identity that she wishes she could have but she knows she can never achieve it on her own. She, she's been abused. 
She's been wronged, she's been sinned against, and obviously she's a sinner. Listen, when you read this passage of scripture, it's easy to think, okay, so she literally has already been divorced from one husband. She's been with five different husbands. So obviously she's this horrible, immoral woman that has cheated on all these husbands and now she's living with a guy who's not her husband. And while yes, you could say that, here's what I likely think is more the scenario. Because unfortunately in Jewish culture, and Jesus speaks to this later on in the gospels, is you had men who were abusing what God didn't even intend for Israel to, to live as, you know, Jesus says, Moses gave a bill of divorcement out of the hardness of your heart. And so what they were doing is these men, these Jewish men, were abusing this. So if I didn't like, I'm being somewhat facetious, but I'm somewhat not. If I didn't like the way that my wife cooks my meals, then here's a bill of divorcement. If I think that she's not as pretty as she was when we got married, then here's a bill of divorcement. If I don't like the way that she's responded to me, then here's a bill of divorcement. So you had Jews literally divorcing their wives left and right for reasons that were not even given under Old Testament law. So when I see this woman who has had five husbands, what that tells me is, is here is a woman who has been treated so poorly by men. Here is a woman who has been abused most likely by men. Here is a woman who has been taken advantage of by men, regardless of whatever her sin was. And what it drives home is this shame that she's experienced. But Jesus wants her to say it out loud to him. Where are you struggling? What is your shame? Where are you in bondage? Why? So that he can offer her an alternative. See, here's the second reason Jesus wants to exchange your shame for his love for you. Because your shame says your thirst for identity will never be satisfied. You know that if you're living in your shame. But Jesus' love says your thirst for identity is satisfied in him. He says here, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This idea of living water in these verses has the idea of a flowing water, not stagnant water. He's inviting her to what? I had you underline it, to a spring, not a well. Like well water, it sits there. Listen to me, if you've lived on a well, it stinks. But I've never gone to a spring and said, man, the water stinks. I've been like, have you ever drank out of a spring? It's the cleanest, most refreshing thing that you've experienced. Jesus isn't offering her stagnant water. He's offering her a spring. Just imagine if you bought a piece of property today. And let's say on that piece of property there was a well. And you're like, you know what? I ain't doing this well water thing. I don't want to have to put salt and all that other stuff into it so it's not hard water. So you're like, I want to tap into city water. Well, you can, you can clear your land and bulldoze over that well and you'll be all fine. But if you've got an underwater spring on your property, you're in trouble. Because you can bulldoze as much dirt as you want on top of that underwater spring. And guess what? The next day, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find water and you're going to find mud. Why? Because you can't bulldoze over a spring and stop it from coming up. There's such significance in Jesus saying, hey, I'm not offering you something where you got to go to a well 
I'm talking about what I will put inside of you that will not be stagnant, but will be bubbling up, will be fresh, will be joyous, will be something that you can't bulldoze over anything. That's what Jesus is offering to her. And this morning what we need to understand is sometimes those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we've accepted Jesus' salvation for us. He's put the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have this spring that is welling up inside of us. But so often we want to try to bulldoze dirt over it. We want to try to bulldoze those things that don't satisfy. We want to bring back our shame and say, well, I know I have this spring, but I still feel like I'm not worthy. Let me bulldoze water over it. Oh, these things are attracting my attention that will never give me what I know that they promise, but nevertheless, I want that into my life. And we bulldoze water over this spring that God has put inside of us, but you can't bulldoze over it. So what happens when you mix dirt with water? You get mud. And what happens when you have mud? You get stuck. And some of us are stuck this morning because we've forgotten what Jesus has put inside of us. We've forgotten, no, 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 that your shame is not what you need to live by, that shame that tells you over and over again you can never be satisfied. No, 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 no. Jesus wants to remind you that your satisfaction is found in him. Let's keep reading verses 19 through 26. We'll be done here soon. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like she's starting to get that Jesus ain't talking about regular old water. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, she was getting caught up in the details. Remember, the Samaritans had a different place to worship than the Jews because the Samaritans only saw the first five books of the Bible as God's word. So that's where the Jews used to worship. That's where Abraham uh, made his first altar. That's where uh, the Israelites pledged their allegiance to the Ten Commandments. But obviously the Jews believed in all 39 books of the Old Testament. And we see that Jerusalem is the place where God was to be worshipped. So there's this tension here. But verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, you know, as you get past the first five books, you begin to have prophecies that a Messiah is coming and that he will be from the tribe of Judah. That's what Jesus is speaking here. But she didn't believe in the books of the Bible past the first five. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What I see in this passage of scripture in these verses is this woman was so focused on the location to worship and the rituals of worship the place of worship, the program of worship, but what was Jesus emphasizing? The heart of worship. See, here's the third reason Jesus wants to exchange your shame for his love for you, because your shame says you have to do more to worship Jesus. Where Jesus' love says he's done it all, worship him. How many of us get caught up into that? I find the more and more 
that I live in this area and the more the more that I talk to so many of you and people that have moved to this area from other places and have come to be a part of this church is how many of us are wrapped up in such legalism that directly affects how we view we should worship. And some of us even sit here and we're like, I know that that's not how I have to do it anymore, but I still struggle. Whether it's, man, I gotta throw on a suit. Listen, I had a whole closet full of suits. If you wanna wear a suit at Salem Chapel, man, knock yourself out. Like God loves you if you're in a suit, God loves you if you're not in a suit. I know all the arguments, I don't have time to debunk them all, because I lived it. Or the certain songs, I have to sing out of a hymnal. I have to sing the first, second, and fourth verse and not the third. I have to sing uh, songs that don't have any percussion by them because God forbid my hips might start moving and I might do something I don't want to do. Like we could go on and on and on with all the different things that exist out there on what we should wear and men should wear pants and women should wear skirts and we go on and on and on and I'm just mentioning things that are low-hanging fruit. But what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. Truth in the sense that I'm the one who you worship. Spirit in, I want your heart. I want your posture to be, Lord, I'm here for you. Lord, I'm worshiping you because you've removed my shame. I'm worshiping you because you give me identity. I'm worshiping you because you say I'm wanted. I'm worshiping you because you've done it all. That's what he's trying to have this woman to understand. And I love that the very first person that he reveals outside of his disciples that he is the Messiah is a woman who is a Samaritan who is viewed as a sinner. That is not done by chance. Because what it demonstrates is that God's saving love, love knows no limitations. It transcends your shame, it transcends your sin, it transcends your barriers of race, of gender, of, ethnic, of ethnicity, social, political, economic classes, and religious tradition. Jesus has done it all. It's what his love says, so worship him. You can clap for that. Like, you can clap for that. Can we clap for that? Like, we clap for everybody winning in a weekend at a game. Can I just say that again? Like, if you want to clap at Salem Chapel, please clap. You're not going to offend me. Trust me. You'll offend me if only one person claps. (laughs) Except for the one person who did. It's a whole other message. Let's finish this passage of Scripture out. Verse 27. This is the best part. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with this woman. Can we just, like this, I haven't even mentioned this yet. Can we just say how Jesus just threw his disciples out in the proverbial deep end by this whole experience? Like he tells them, we're going through Samaria, boys. We ain't taking the eastern route. And guess what? You're gonna go into town and buy food made by the people that you hate. I mean, that. That's a message in and of itself. And then they come back and they're like, who's Jesus talking to? But they never ask any questions. No one said, what do you seek? It says, why are you talking with her? Here's two things I want you to underline in this passage, verse 28. They're so significant. This first phrase, so the woman left her water jar. 
and went away into a town and said to the people, here's the next thing, phrase I want you to underline, this first sentence in verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Here's the fourth reason Jesus wants to exchange your shame for his love for you. Because your shame says you're defined by your mistakes. But Jesus' love says your mistakes have been restored to tell a story of God's grace. What happened to this woman after receiving Jesus' love for her? She left her water jar. The object that symbolized the futility of being able to satisfy her inner thirst for identity. The object that reminded her that I got to do this again. I got to go to the well again. I've got to experience the shame again. I've got to experience the whispers again. I've got to experience that I'm not good enough again, which is why I got to come at noon rather than with all the other ladies and chat with them and have friendships and feel accepted. I've got to do this again. But when she met Jesus and when Jesus reshaped how she saw herself, what did she do? She left her water jar. She left the very thing that symbolized the futility of her endeavors up to this point. She left the jar that says, you're not wanted. She left the jar that says, your search for identity can never be satisfied. She left the jar that says, you have to do more to be accepted by Jesus. She left the jar that says, you're defined by your mistakes. Listen to me this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, leave the jar. Leave it. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ in this room watching online, Jesus wants you to understand that he loves you, that he lived for your sin. He died for your sin. He rose again for your sin. He has not condemned you, but he has offered you salvation. Leave the jar. But here's what else she did. She no longer experienced the shame of her past. Because see, she came to the well at noon every day so that nobody would talk to her, so that nobody would whisper about her. But now that she's received Jesus' love, what does she say? She's willing to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He's told me everything that I've done. Now she wants to tell people what she's done. Why? Because when you receive Jesus' love, what does it do? It restores what has been done to you or what you have done to someone else, it reshapes it so that you can see it as a testimony of God's grace and love. See, Jesus' love gave peace to her story. She obviously doesn't struggle with it anymore. It gave power to her story. Oh, come and let me tell you about a man who told me everything that I did. It gave purpose to her story. Oh, Lord, even though the way that I've lived or what was done to me or what I did to others was not what you would have wanted, and yes, it was sin, but now I see a purpose in it. I see that you've worked it together for the good, Romans 8, 28. Can we close with this, verses 39 through 42? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of what? 
because of the woman, say it with me, testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Those poor old disciples, not only are you gonna go buy food, but now you gotta stay two days overnight. But look at verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen to me, if you ever have in your mind as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not good enough, your identity must be found in something that can't satisfy, that you have to do more to worship Jesus, that you are defined by your mistakes, that is not from the Holy Spirit, that is from the enemy. Why? Because that is not what Jesus' love says. Jesus wants to abstain your shame for his love for you. God, we're here today to remind ourselves of that reality, of the glorious exchange that you desire to make in our life. That exchange that happens when we say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I place my full trust in you as my Lord and Savior. That moment that we confess our sin and believe in Jesus' salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, that's when the bondage of shame falls from our life. But Lord, we know that when we walk with you as followers of Jesus Christ, it is so easy to pick it up again. It's so easy when we sin after we follow you to bear that shame. Lord, I battle it as much as anyone else. And God, may today we walk out of here rejoicing because we left our water jar. And we see the pain of our past as having purpose because it tells a story of your grace. Lord, I thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?